They are obsessed with getting attention and affection from someone they can overpower. What we want is you to be situationally aware. There is a due diligence to be wise. 77% of the sex offenders are unknown. And now, the safety zone. Mike, welcome back to the safety zone. And we're going to talk about a, a difficult subject, we, which we have touched on before. But as with everything that you do, everything is about safety. Safety of our kids has always been high on the agenda of what you do and your background. And I know that we had talked in another podcast about the pastor out in Menlo Park who recently had to resign because his son had come to him, was transparent in that respect, but had come to him with telling him that he had attraction to children and thoughts. And the pastor left him in, the pastor father, I should say, left him in the role that he had at church, the volunteer role, which was with children, and kind of used the basis of, well, he has thoughts, but not the actions. And we're coming back to the subject today, and it's a difficult subject, but it's one that we're seeing more and more of in our society. It's actually very rampant. And there was an article that came out. It was actually originally, I believe, an original op-ed in 2014 or article, but that resurfaced of a lawyer out of Rutgers, Camden, professor of law, who basically said, look, pedophiles are not criminals if they're not actually acting upon it, correct? So we want to talk about that because she's basically saying they're facing discrimination. And and you would kind of take this young man who admitted to his daddy was struggling, but because technically, I don't think the verdict is out yet of whether he did act on it, but that he had the thoughts doesn't mean that's all bad. So I'm loosely paraphrasing, but you have a lot more information about this article. And, And the reason we're bringing it back up again is because this did resurface and because as the kids go back to school, there's a lot of connections there with the online schooling and even tutoring and just a lot of aspects that you really want to flesh out and let people be more aware of the dangers and what to look for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we agree on one thing is it looks like our world here in the United States has been turned upside down, pandemic, but look at more of the civil unrest in a lot of our large urban environments right now. And what we've done is we've said, oh, we can just police ourselves. We can take them out of jurisdictions. We can defund them like we're doing in New York and Seattle. We don't need police. When in fact, actually all civilized societies are built on a foundation of law and order. So I think, you know, we've seen this trend for years where we over time begin to minimalize things that are happening. I own a background screening firm. That's one part of the company I own. And so we do hundreds and thousands of background checks. When this started 16 or 17 years ago, when I launched Safe Hiring to where it is today, completely different. And let me even pause right there before anybody kind of says, oh, you're just all law and order. You're only focused on criminal behavior. Number one, we don't want to miss anything like a sex offender or serious offender that could cause somebody to get harmed. 
Second to that, you ask anybody on our teams, they've heard me say this a 100,000 times probably, we don't ever want to report something on somebody that's not accurate. We take a lot of care and concern about the use of the criminal record information. We advise our clients to make sure they understand how to use this information properly. Simply having a criminal record should not prevent them from volunteering, being hired. You need to be able to articulate like the EEOC requires. You have to articulate kind of a three-pronged approach. What is the crime? How long ago did it happen? And how does it impact the position? That is for employment purposes. I would say the same thing for volunteering. What is the crime? What is the volunteer position? By nature, does the crime have anything to do with or any risk with where they want to volunteer? But what we've seen over the last 16 years is this shifting pendulum where more records being expunged. I believe in expungement. I'm on the record. I believe in it. I told policymakers I believe in it. However, when they write these statutes, if they're not careful in how they write these statutes, I sit in a state that has no less than probably three versions of expungement statutes. And we have seen on more than one occasion where convicted sex offenders with children have been expunged. That is not the intent of the statute. The intent of the statute is I get picked up for DUI. I had a public intox in college. You do something that's nonviolent. And after a period of time where you've proven I learned my lesson, right. I'm not going to do it again. It should be wiped away as if it didn't happen. Right. But one of these sex offenders has popped up in three different organizations we serve. The first time that he popped up, it had not been expunged yet. And then he's popped up in two schools in a church. Uh. So what, what is he doing? Do you think he just has thoughts and just wants to volunteer? He was wanting to go on a missions trip with a church to uh, Mexico pre-COVID. Do you think he really just wants to be around children and he has thoughts of children? Although, let me back up and say he was convicted of these crimes with the child because it was expunged. It's not that it didn't happen. It absolutely happened. A judge just cleared his record. The loophole has been removed in the state of Indiana where that can't happen anymore. Good. But he got there first. I did not know that. And to hear that, like you said, a child can be scarred for life. It isn't just, oh, okay, do your penance and, and you're done. You're talking about young lives. You're talking about lives that are destroyed through these things. And that's amazing. What's amazing to me, and I look at an article like this that resurfaces, and for whatever reason, it comes back out six years later in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I look at this and I think, okay, a law professor... What do they possibly have expertise on? I get this as an op-ed. This is opinion. Mm -hmm. It can be a dangerous opinion and treading into waters where you don't really know what you're talking about. I don't care how well-versed you think you are as a professor of law. And there's nothing in there that explains to me that you've done these other research or worked with sex offenders. And I do have 25 years of working within this environment. And I have stood in a class that I was teaching and spoke to a man who led 
the sex offender management program for that particular state. They worked every day in the prisons in that state with convicted sex offenders. And I said, what's the recidivism rate? High. What is the one thing that can cause them to never do this again? And he's looking at this from a secular perspective, Mm -hmm. right? He said, no model exists. And so basically, I said, what you're telling me is you go to work every day working with a population that you know when you step into that prison, there is nothing that can cause them to not do this again. So when people say it's only a thought, how do you know it's only a thought? Where do we come to that conclusion? It starts with a thought. And it doesn't mean that everything we think, I mean, we're all capable of thinking icky things but or bad stuff. But, but if the thoughts are repetitively fed and constantly obsessed on, when does the thought become an action? There is a connection between the thoughts and the eventual action, correct? Well, you look at some of the most prolific predatory offenders that when you think of the Ted Bundys, and I could list dozens and more of these really high profile predators, Mm -hmm. fantasy or thinking was a big part of this. Why they're so difficult to catch sometimes is because there is this process of thinking and fantasizing and acting it out Mm -hmm. until the point sometimes when they act on it the first time, they don't get caught because in their mind, they have done it and they've worked through, oh my gosh, I did this. How do I get away with it? What if they tell? What if they do this? And so the thinking is a big part in that particular subset of violent offenders. Right. And then you have, I remember with Ted Bundy, he talked about his addiction to pornography. And a lot of times, and of course, like you said, it isn't a statement on those different kinds of magazines. But nowadays, of course, you've got online, you've got videos. It's not anymore the Playboy magazine on the coffee table kind of thing back in the day. But he even said, that it was an addiction in that he had, even on the pornography, it had to keep getting further and further into a very dark aspect, right? For him to have the same feeling, just like someone doing drugs, they have to do more to get that same original feeling. And at some point, that's not enough. And he said it, it turns into the action. So I think just making something just, well, they're just thoughts doesn't seem to jive with the overall background, right, of even the convicted sex offenders. These are a very focused and persistent group when we're talking about the child molester. And I get this professor is trying to make a distinction between somebody that has thoughts and somebody who has acted on the thoughts. Well, if we look at the group that has acted This is a group that I just mentioned. This is the guy that pops up at two schools and a church and is pounding on the door to get into our children. This is the guy who a friend of mine was 25 plus years working child sex abuse cases in New Hampshire. This is a guy that when my friend would go online every day and act like a 12 or 13 year old boy online and interact with these sex offenders and then get them to send pictures or send things through the mail and then they would prosecute them. He had a man who rode his bicycle from Illinois to New Hampshire and would drop letters into the mail periodically and let him know 
hey, here's where I am. I'm still on my way. And you want to talk about what you're up against? That's the kind of person you're up against. And when he showed up at a park in New Hampshire and they arrested him, the first thing my friend asked him, he said, what did you think the odds really were that I was a kid and not a cop? And he said, I thought it was about 50-50. So on a 50-50, he was willing to ride his bike for days and days and days Wow! from Illinois to New Hampshire, hoping that it might be a little boy in the park. You tell me that's an, that's an enemy that you want to come up against thinking, oh, I just think they have thoughts about this and they don't always act upon it. How do you know? That leads to, as you said, there are signs, right? What to look for in a predator. It's a predatory person. There's so is this person on the bike. He was so determined, even knowing the risk didn't matter, right? He had that single focus. It's kind of four characteristics of pedophiles. And we've just talked about one, which is kind of the incurability. Like there's no cure for this. I worked in violent crime, spent a lot of years working in domestic violence. And within that arena, you had this proliferation of batter intervention programs over the years. And they're trying to take men and women who are using a tool of violence and teach them new ways of dealing with and managing these thoughts and the outcomes. The success rates are, they're as successful as that person wants it to be. I don't care how good you are as a facilitator. If I just spit out everything you want me to say and I don't change the way my core beliefs are, then the reality is I'm not changing. And so what we do know from research, and I'm talking valid research and not op-ed pieces, research says that there is a low, low likelihood of ever curing a pedophile. And so why are we taking the risk? What else? Promiscuity. There's a lot of promiscuity that plays into pedophilia. Well, we go back to thoughts. Well, what are the thoughts? Are you just saying they simply are attracted to a child? Do they really articulate to you how attracted they are to a child? Have you ever, as I have, watched a video interview of a man who literally takes a doll and gets up on a table and shows us what he did to that doll that ultimately killed that child. That is what I'm talking about here. This promiscuity, this sickness, these perversions. They're not probably telling you. I would love to know in Menlo Church case, Yes. what were the thoughts? saying I'm attracted. What does that mean that you're attracted? I don't understand what that means. And so I think sometimes we're making this very generic and sterilizing that these are thoughts. I want to know exactly what your thoughts are. Some part of being a violent crime detective, I'm telling you, there's days I could go home and I couldn't take enough showers to get the crud off of me from the things that you were hearing from the people that were doing these kind of crimes. So when you start to talk about their having thoughts, I know what kind of thoughts some of these people have, and they're probably not telling you 
exactly what those true thoughts really are. Right. I have to say what you were just saying about just the people that the detectives and the people that are working in that area, God bless them. That would be a very difficult job to have to see up. I think most of us don't know those details and to have to do that, especially if they're a parent would be a very difficult job. So I just want to interject a big thank you to those that, that are trying to keep the kids safe and that are having to really be involved in things that are very dark and very difficult. So when you're looking at a predator, they have a method. They know what they're doing. It sounds like they're very determined to do it. Mike, what would you say are the areas in our society that are probably the most prone for predators to show up? I mean, whatever vehicle that is, it could be a physical vehicle. Now we have online, that's become a vehicle. But what do you think are areas that really need to understand or people or whatever the case may be where predators really focus on? Yeah. And that's kind of the third or the fourth characteristic is the predatory behavior. I had mentioned years ago, if you look back kind of pre-internet, back when I was policing, the internet was just kind of coming around. So I'm dating myself. But at that point, child sex abusers, pedophiles, child molesters, they had to go out and kind of drive and look and they were trying to find our children. Well, now and think about right now, where is everybody at right now? The whole world has gone online over the last five yes. months with COVID. And so now they no longer have to go out and ride their bike from Illinois to New Hampshire. Now all they do is get online and they oftentimes can lure that child to them. And so very predatory, very intelligent. That whole myth about criminal behavior and lack of intelligence, I would tell you right now, our prison is full of highly intelligent people, very sophisticated manipulators. And so they've made decisions to do things on a criminal side where they could have been much more engaged in providing and services to society had they chose to gone the positive route. But these are highly intelligent, very well thought out and get the word thought, thinking, lots of thought going into it. When you look at crimes, even like domestic violence, these are not crimes of passion. When they talk about a Ted Bundy, these are not typically crimes of passion. Yes, they were out trolling. They were looking for a type of victim, but there's a lot of thought that goes into this. People don't typically just react, lose it, and commit some kind of crime. There are situational rape cases, no doubt about that. But the vast majority, when we're talking about with children, these are not just situational. These are folks that are highly determined to get access. So schools are doing a much better job of screening and volunteer screening and staff our issue is 80% of sex offenders do not have a criminal history because it's so highly underreported. So look at our church and ministries. The majority of church and ministries in the United States are nowhere near the point they need to be to be able to defend themselves from this kind of enemy. This enemy is way more sophisticated than their policies and procedures and protocols are right now. So Got to understand a little bit about this mentality, how they think. We keep going back to thinking. We have to understand how they think before we can ever 
try to defeat them or keep them away from our children. And, you know, you made a a comment about the churches and kind of the naivete on this issue. And let's face it, it's not a pleasant issue. It's not something that you want to have to think about. But you do have to think about it, especially when you're in places where children are and you have volunteers. And it brought back to me, you did an op-ed, Mike, for a Christian publication that came out, the Christian Post, which has got a million plus readers and you discussed this issue and there was some comments underneath that I know that one of the commentators kind of seemed to take offense that you were pushing the security aspect of background checks and other methods. And I think there was a comment, well, Jesus didn't have background checks <laughs> on the apostles. And, and, you know, you chuck a little bit, but the reality is I don't think he was too far away from what a lot of people think. There's just, it would seem like a perpetrator would go to places where there's a natural affinity of trust, obviously places where kids are at, but it seems like the other bell there would be trusting type of place and what better place than a church where you have that kind of environment. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but to not take precautions is really just, I don't want to say asking for trouble, but in many ways it is. It's bringing on the probability of something happening. Absolutely. And I would argue that Jesus did do background checks because he could see right into the heart of men. And if I had that kind of ability, we could offer a 100% guarantee we could keep the churches safe. Yeah. That's not the world we live in, yeah, right? Exactly. I do have some concern when people, because he came back a couple of times because somebody else kind of addressed him in the comments. Oh. And so sometimes you're pinching people, okay? I've done training all over the world on violence against women and children issues. It happened every once in a while. You'd have somebody in a class that really, really you pinched a nerve with them. My first reaction was I was hitting really close to home. Yeah. Because most people would just socially say, I'm not going to react to this right. because it's going to label me if I say anything. Exactly. But it pinched them so hard by what I was saying that they bought in and had to come back and say something to me. But I think it goes to the heart also of kind of the fourth characteristic I'm talking about, which is high recidivism. I've seen some studies recently where they're talking about, well, the recidivism rates aren't near as high with sex offenders as we once thought they were. And I'm like, how do you possibly know that? Because if we go to the foundation of sex offenders in the United States, one of the things we know, and you can go on to RAIN, R-A-I-N-N.org, full of statistics if you want to see what the reality of sexual abuse is in the United States. When you go and look at the, some of the statistics, they're talking about out of every 1,000 sexual assault victims, only 230 are reported to police. So you're talking about maybe a 23% report rate. You compare that to robberies, robbery goes up to about 60%. Other assaults and batteries are roughly a little over 60%. So robberies and assault and battery receive three times as many reports to the police as a victim of sexual assault. And we could spend the next 17 podcasts talking about all the reasons why. 
But if you go through the numbers, not only is it a low report rate, 23%, of those 230, 46 even get arrested. Only nine of those 46 get referred to prosecution. Only five of the nine lead to any kind of felony conviction. And only four out of five will end up incarcerated. So if we know that this is the most abnormally low report rates of any crime we deal with, then doesn't it make sense when somebody gets out of prison for one of these crimes, even if they reoffend, we still have to understand and calculate into this. If I get out as a robber and rob again, 60% chance I'm going to get arrested for it. If I get out as a sexual assault predator, and I reoffend, I still only have about a 23% chance that I'm going to get reported to the police. Mm. So just because we're not seeing the numbers right. doesn't mean they're not there, right? 77% of the sex offenders are unknown. If you want to do a podcast or we could talk about who are the undetected rapists in our community, yeah. that's the biggest fear. That's probably a whole nother podcast is really who are the 77% of people exactly. who commit this crime and we don't know who they are, know. anybody. Again, it, we bring hard issues here because what you do is safety. And it's hard to hear sometimes, but it's very important that we are educated and that we understand it. It's not a driving people to fear. It's the aspect that there, there actually is safety in the education of knowing what to look for, knowing these numbers and not sitting back and just thinking, well, you know, we know so-and-so and, oh, he's so nice. And you had said earlier, and I kind of chuckled because you uh, <laughs> talked about how some of these people going back, I remember the whole Ted Bundy case, I'm old enough to certainly remember that. And yeah, this was a good looking guy. This was a charming guy. This wasn't somebody, usually we have in our head a picture of what that person is and they're creepy looking and they're driving that weird van. And I'm not saying that isn't necessarily the case, but we just get these stereotypes, don't we? And the reality is could be that guy that he thinks really nice that's sitting next to you. And again, it's not a fear-mongering thing. We're, we certainly aren't people to do that, but it's just that you do see a lot of people that just really aren't aware. And we can certainly be loving and trusting, or as you had said in your op-ed, there is a, a biblical verse that says, be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. We're not trying to get people to be... <laughs> looking at like, who's that person? We're not talking about that. But what we are talking about is there is a due diligence to be wise and to have the eyes on what's actually going on and to be able to protect people without being paranoid or being angry or having ill effects towards people, but at the same time, not being naive, correct? Yeah, it's all a balancing act, right? We have to make sure that we understand. You don't have to understand it to the depth that I understand it. You don't have to see the stuff that I had to see or some of my friends or colleagues. Why do they do it? Some of these people put their shoes on and go to work every morning and they jump into the depths of this depravity because they're trying to prevent your kids mm -hmm. from ever having to be a victim of these guys, men and women that are out here perpetrating these kind of crimes. And that's something that, again, like you said, it's it gets back to the, the old adage of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You can't 
there certainly is bad actors in the police force and, and that has to be addressed. And you've talked about that on another podcast about recruiting, but that doesn't mean you lump an entire police force into that category because the reality is there are people that have evil intent, that have wrong intent towards other people's, towards other people to do harm. And we need the people like your friend that are doing things that I certainly couldn't do that job, just couldn't know probably all of that details. And like you said, for all of us average people or parents or pastors or school administrators, what we do have to know is to be aware and to know what precautions that we have to take to that is within our scope to keep the kids as safe as we can. Nobody can protect 100%, correct? But there's a lot that can be done to put a boundary in that oftentimes isn't being done. And just to be able to address that, what what are some of the things that schools and churches and, and now including online, and for a lot of that, that's going to be parents monitoring. What are some of the practical things that can be done Yep. Well, one of its foundation is training. And we're spinning up a continuous learning hub right now that really takes a lot of this complex information. We're going to put it in short seven-minute training modules. So as you're onboarding volunteers for your organization, we can walk you through a six or seven-minute training on grooming, a six or seven-minute on different aspects. Because what we want is you to be situationally aware. So you see something, you understand what you're seeing, and then you're reporting it. You're not just going, mm, doesn't feel right. That intuition saying something doesn't feel right. We don't always act on something doesn't feel right. I want to give you points that say, you see these things, you hear these things, this needs to be reported. So we start with education. Some of the tools we have, schools, almost all of them have adopted like anonymous reporting. It can also be something we adopt in our churches, because I'm going to be honest with you. You've got a lot of men and women that are sitting in that church pew every Sunday or coming online these days and watching that are going through some of this. Give them a safe, anonymous way to report it until they are comfortable telling you who they are. And some of these tools, one of our partners has an anonymous reporting tool. It's also tied into counselors 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it immediately, when they respond to this, can drive them into a conversation with an, a counselor if they're willing to mm -hmm. go to that. So some of these tools to be able to really allow them to ask for help. And sometimes they're not ready to tell you who they are but they want to start those first couple steps toward finding some help. And the kind of thing I'll leave this with, and I know we keep harping on this, but I want people to understand how defunding law enforcement is going to impact us as a community and our safety. When you start taking the expertise, you don't take a rookie cop and you don't take a guy that was a mall cop. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be disparaging. You don't take a mall security officer and put them through an academy to become a police officer and they become an expert in child sex abuse. When we're seeing this defunding, we are seeing more officers going into the drop program. That means they're retiring. They're getting out of there. Almost all of our child sex abuse, one of my best friends I went to the academy with, I caught up with him last week. He spent the last eight years of his career in Nashville in child sex abuse investigations. He said, these are all driven by confession, Mike. 
He said, we work a robbery, we work domestic violence, we work a homicide. I don't have to get the perpetrator to always confess to me. I have evidence. But he says, when I find out about a child sex assault that happened four months ago, there is no evidence. And now I'm talking about a young child that may or may not have the ability to testify. The whole case hinges upon a confession. You have to really know what you're doing as an investigator to get that confession from somebody that's committed that crime. And we're going to push all of that expertise out of our police departments, and we're going to backfill it with people who have no idea what what they're doing. You want to see 46 out of a 1,000 go to an arrest? That goes to one or two real quickly when you get rid of this expertise. That alone is a frightening thought. And I know we've discussed this before, but it's hard for me to understand the reasoning. I do understand the frustration that drove after Mr. Floyd. And I, I understand, I understand all of that. And you said, as a cop, there's, there's what, nothing more that you can't stand, right? Than a bad cop, nothing more you like than a good cop. But it has to be addressed. But it's just oftentimes, it's, again, our human nature, right, of being impulsive in the sense of got to do something to remedy it. But the problem is, it's again, that tunnel vision, what But you think is a remedy is in actuality, at least in this case, with the defunding, you're creating another perfect storm, right, of opportunity for crime and for really further problems. You know, what do you suggest to to people that work with children, whether it's a volunteer base or professional that is concerned? Maybe they're not doing background checks or a school, you know, even what... What are some practical tips of what they need to do? Yeah, what we've seen, and we work with some of the largest international volunteer organizations that span the globe. We work with large and small school districts. Our largest has 50,000 volunteers, 100 community partners. We work with large and small church organizations. And this is the perfect time as we're kind of a lot of us still virtual is to assess what are we doing? How are we doing? Are we doing it correctly? Background checks. It's not just as easy as clicking a box and saying, yeah, background checks work. No, there, there's no definition of a background check. What we do as part of our 360 solutions, we have different lanes. It could be safe volunteer, safe school, safe ministry is all about a 360 solution. We can ask 10 questions. We start to do an assessment and we really look at everything from background checks to reference checks to your education and continuous learning to assessing physical the organization, threat assessment, all of these different parameters. And we can help do an assessment of that and determine kind of where you're at, what's your grade, what is kind of a roadmap of things that you need to consider or implement over time. But I would say the majority of volunteer organizations, what we find is they're using inadequate background screening solutions. And I say that, and a lot of times people think, well, we don't have the money. A lot of times we have products because of our technology that give you a much more complex background screening solution, and it's actually less money than what you're currently spending. So doing an assessment sometimes means you're going to save money, not spend more money. But you need to have a partner that understands the whole vision 
of keeping an organization safe, not just one component so that you can put a complete game plan together. Right, which makes sense. It's it's an interconnecting of really various different actions that need to take place to keep your environment as safe as possible, especially for children. Mike, again, what a full episode of information and in a hard subject. It's something that makes most of us, especially a parent, cringe. And yet the reality is we can't put our heads in the sand. We see it everywhere in every sector of society. And so it's it's not in the detriment of being fearful. It's just more in the really encouraging everybody to be aware and to take the precautions that you need to take to keep people safe and to enjoy your life, right? To be able to go to church and have the the confidence that your child's fine in that room or school or the YMCA or any plethora of places and online. And I know parents are very diligent about what their kids watch online, who they're talking to, and really think about that. It's the same thing that we want in every sector of society. So we appreciate, again, all of your information. And I just want to encourage anyone listening If you are interested in being assessed, maybe you're sitting there thinking, hmm, gee, we do a background check. I don't know if it's really good. Maybe that's all they do. Or maybe there's other things. Maybe they don't do a background check at all. But if you're really interested in the whole 360 approach, which is so vital because it's not just one thing. There's many different aspects of keeping people and keeping buildings where you're at safe. Please reach out. It's safehiringsolutions.com. And there's plenty of information there that you can also get freely, but to do assessments is on the site as well, right, Mike? That It can be. We're, we're creating virtual options right now, much more inexpensive, lots of options. Lots of options. So go in and of course you have a question. There's contact form, there's emails, and I think the assessment's a really great idea, especially like you said now, where so much is virtual, you can do it virtual. And I kind of encourage churches, too, that having worked with so many over my lifetime, that get an assessment done. See where you're at. You might be surprised, right? You might think you have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, and you might be surprised that there's a gaping hole. And for some, they maybe haven't even thought of it. And, and that's okay, too, in the sense of get assessed and see where you're at. It's a really good idea. So go to www.safehiringsolutions.com. And Mike, thank you once again for your knowledge. And, and again, we do thank all of the people that work tirelessly in the child sexual abuse areas in that whole arena, whether it's law enforcement, counselors, safe houses, just a plethora of people that are out there daily that do care and that are good people and they're rolling up their sleeves and really dealing with it on the front lines. And we do thank them for that. And Mike, thank you as always for your heart on this issue and and keeping children safe. Thanks, Melinda. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.